Sometimes uh, God bends things, and when he does, no one can straighten them. Sometimes God bends things that we had assumed would always remain straight. And when he does, no one can straighten them. Sometimes God bends things and we discover that our joy hinged on their staying straight. Sometimes God bends things and we see that God is not enough for our hearts and that the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which is what Paul calls it when he writes to Timothy, that that glorious gospel needs to be supplemented in order for our hearts to rest. Sometimes God bends things, and under the pressure of adversity, we discover that he is more real, more faithful, more full of loving kindness and compassion and strength than we had ever realized during the longest and the brightest days of prosperity. Sometimes God bends Nations and governments, corporations and economies. Sometimes he bends careers and addresses and finances and health and even churches. And when he does, no one can straighten them. When God bends things, do we respond as if he were a vandal of our plans or the master builder of his? And the question I'm very eager to think with you about this morning from our text is this. When God bends things in the lives of his beloved children, how should we respond? I'm very eager, and I know you, Emmanuel, are very eager to know how we can best and most honor him when that happens. And this text addresses that very uh, squarely, Our text really is a, a meditation, a celebration on the providence of God. Now, that's a good Presbyterian word. And uh, what does it mean? Uh, the best place I know to go for that for the definition is uh, the larger catechism, which is almost the best place to go for almost any definition. And in question 18 of the larger catechism, uh, the, the question is posed, what are God's works of providence? And the answer is given this way. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering, ordering them and all their actions to his own glory. And our text this morning, particularly verses 13 and 14, are a celebration of that biblical truth. Now, if you, uh, if you uh, think about how the, the five verses are structured, I, what, I guess what I'd like to do first is give you a quick overview. We've got five verses, verses 10 through 14, and they are, they are built around two contrasts that hold them together. And the first contrast is a contrast between present adversity as opposed to past prosperity. In other words, uh, the question, uh, the ver- verse 10, the question in verse 10 
assumes that somebody is currently experiencing adversity after they've enjoyed prosperity in the past. And now from the heart of that adversity, they're asking the question, hey, how come the present is not as good as the past? So that's contrast number one, present adversity as contrasted with past prosperity. The second contrast that holds these uh, verses together is the contrast between responding foolishly and unwisely to that first contrast or wisely. Verse 10 is negative counsel. Verse 10 says what we shouldn't do in that situation. Then verses 11 through 14 are really positive counsel. What is wise? Uh, Verses 11 through 12 are a description of the benefits of wisdom. And then 13 through 14 are specific examples. What are you to do? Wisdom. Okay, if we're not supposed to ask the question in verse 10, which we'll talk about in a minute, then let's think about what is wise and the benefits of wisdom. And wisdom is so valuable. Okay, what does wisdom look like now when we find ourselves in a situation of present adversity and we are remembering that the past was more characterized by prosperity? And that's what verses 13 and 14 are. They're to give us counsel there. Let's go to verse 10 and start digging in. And what verse 10 essentially tells us is that in that situation, we are not to waste time on the wrong question. You see, verse 10 starts out by saying it's a command. It says, don't ask why. It's a command. He says, do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? That's a very simple command. That's the first half of the verse. And the the reasoning behind that command is given in the second half of the verse. The reason we're not supposed to ask why is because it's the wrong question. For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Now, that's very interesting because if you're like me, When you're experiencing adversity, perhaps I'm alone in this. So I'll just make this a public confession if that's what it needs to be. But I find that the why question is very often at the top of my default list when present adversity is contrasted with past prosperity. And right out from the gate, right out of the gate, Uh, The writer of Ecclesiastes is telling us in that situation, it's not from wisdom that you ask about this. In other words, it's unwise. That question comes from some other place. Wisdom in that situation is going to look differently than the question why. Don't waste time on the wrong question. Now, we need uh, verses 13 and 14 to really understand better why that's the wrong question. But for now, I just want you to see that the question so often that I'm tempted to ask and that you might be tempted to ask is immediately identified as a question we are not to ask. And we're not supposed to waste time on that question. And then verses 11 through 12 celebrate uh, the value and benefits of wisdom. Look at all the things that wisdom does generally. Wisdom is good, along with an inheritance, the first half of verse 11. It's an advantage to those who see the sun, the second half of verse 11. It's good to have wisdom. Uh, Verse 12, wisdom is protection, just as money is protection. And so when you read that, you go, hmm, 
is wisdom no better than money? And the writer knows that that's exactly what you're going to think, so the second half of the verse clarifies. But the advantage of knowledge, in other words, wisdom, is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. In other words, he's drawing a contrast. He's saying that, that people look to money for security, and in that sense, wisdom is similar to money, that wisdom is uh, a preserving force, just as we think money is a preserving force. But the difference between wisdom is that wisdom actually does preserve the life of its possessors, that there are things that wisdom grants to you that money, that an abundance of money cannot buy for you and that an absence of money or material prosperity cannot deny you. Unlike money, in other words, unlike seasons of prosperity, wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Now, when you get to that point, you say, wow, wisdom is powerful. I want to know what wisdom looks like in a situation of present adversity when my mind is full of memories of past prosperity. I want to know what wisdom looks like because I want the advantage of wisdom. I want the protection of wisdom. I want my life to be preserved. I want those things. So, Lord, teach me what does wisdom look like in this situation? And again, the answer is very simple. At one level, it's verse 13. Consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? And then in verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider, same verb again. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not discover anything that will be after him. In other words, what wisdom means is very interesting. You, know, you can tell why I like this guy, because uh, theology is very practical to him. You see that? You have this huge existential question of how am I to live in the contrast between past prosperity and present adversity? And his answer is you go to God as being responsible for both. Wisdom is an enormous view of the sovereignty, of the design, and of the power of God. The positive example of wisdom is to have an enormous view of God. Consider the work of God. Prosperity is the work of God. Adversity is the work of God. And when God bends something, no one can straighten it. He is powerful and purposeful. Friends, God is the question, the fo- should be the focus of our questions. Who is God? What is He teaching me about Himself in this situation? Wisdom calls us in verses 13 and 14, to have a God-centered view of both prosperity and adversity. And that is such a glorious thing. That is so liberating. 
Because what that means is that our prosperity does not prove our goodness or our wisdom. You hear that? If God has blessed you materially, if God has blessed you with health, if God has blessed you with skill and intelligence, don't ever make the mistake of thinking that that proves your goodness or your wisdom or your superiority vis-a-vis someone else. No, if both prosperity and adversity are the work of God, that means that just as our prosperity doesn't prove our goodness or our wisdom or our superiority, so, and this is what I want you to hear if you're enduring adversity, so your adversity does not prove your badness or your folly. Oh, I want you to hear that. And I want you to believe that. The universe is not a vending machine. And I knew as soon as I wrote that and said that, that you would look at me like I needed to go on vacation again. The universe is not a vending machine. How does a vending machine work? You put money in, and output equals the money you put in. Right? Input equals output. You put money into the system, you get something back. Verse 13 tells you right away that that is not how the universe is set up. You you can put evil into the world and get grace, can't you? Is that not the Gospel? Aren't you glad the universe is not a vending machine? Oh yeah, when we talk about grace, when we talk about our sin, sure, We exalt in the fact that God has not set the universe up like a vending machine where we don't get back what we have earned, right? That the universe is not governed by karma. That every action spiritually results in an equal and opposite spiritual reaction upon us. Thank God that He interrupts that automatic kind of idea. But when it comes to our goodness... We do want to think that the universe is a vending machine, don't we? Deep down, we want to believe that if we put good in, that if we follow the Lord, that if we trust Him with His promises, that if we love Him and we seek to believe His gospel, that the dividend, the revenue that will come out of the gospel vending machine is that life will go well. There's only one problem with that. The best man who ever lived, who put the most good into the system, received the worst. Right? Jesus. If the universe were a vending machine, then verses like Acts 14.22 wouldn't be in the Bible. Some of you read it with me this morning. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Wait, 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 wait a second. If the universe were a vending machine... I mean, that's a a verse that Paul addresses to Christians in churches he's planning. No, 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 it's not supposed to work that way. Through many tribulations, those who disobey God and who don't live faithfully to him and who never come to church, uh, they're going to enter hell. That's how that's supposed to work, right? But notice our Father doesn't talk to us that way. No, there's something much deeper than an automatic, mechanistic view of the universe here that's going on. Uh, The universe is not an impersonal, automatic machine. There's a person 
who's governing the universe generally and totally and specifically your life, Christian. And He is your Father. And so the seasons of adversity, the seasons of prosperity, they are the work of God. And if they are the work of God, that means they fulfill the purpose of God. You can't understand that phrase, work of God, apart from the person of God. Right? They are the work of God, which means they serve the purpose of this person whom we identify in the Bible as God and all that He is. And that means that, that the work of God will conform to the promises of God. It will be fulfilled by the power of God, guided and, and, and upheld by the power of God, which means that we are to consider the person of God in our adversity. God wants us to see Him. It's very interesting, the word that's used in the Hebrew here twice. Uh, Both times that the New American Standard translates uh, consider at the beginning of verse 13 and in verse 14, but in the day of adversity, consider both times. uh, Actually, the word is simply the imperative form of the verb to see. So in other words, if, if, I can, if I can depart from the NAS here, and I do it with fear and trembling, um, here's what verse 13 literally says to those who are in the midst of adversity. See the work of God. And again in verse 14, in the day of prosperity be happy, but in the day of adversity see God has made the one as well as the other. In other words, I find that very helpful because because what that because when you think of consider, at least when I do, that's a brain word mainly. But when I think about seeing, I think, okay, this is I'm being called to look beneath and past the surface. I'm being called to live out in the midst of adversity the very thing that Hebrews 11.1 reminds me of, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. I am certain about things I don't see. Because, why? Because of the virtue of my faith? No, but because God's promise says that despite what appears on the surface, reality is ultimately defined by God's Word. It is the work of God, upheld by the power of God, in conformity with the promises of God, that defines what is and what will not be. So in other words, what we're being told to do, what wisdom is here, is to look, to see. It's a different way of seeing adversity. How do we typically look at adversity when it comes? We look at it and we say either, I blew it. That's a nice way of saying that. I did something wrong. I need to work harder. Or we say, God's not faithful. Where is He? Verse 13 calls us to look harder. It it calls us to not settle for the surface reaction, the surface interpretation. It says, look for the work of God in this situation. Spend your time on that question. Don't 
waste your time on why. Spend your time on the question, where is God here? What does he want me to see about him in this situation? When God bends things, he means to show things to us. And when we trust in God's sovereign work, his sovereign and good design, it's not just a power thing, right? I mean, when I talk about God's sovereignty, I'm talking about a power that is shaped and guided and exercised in accordance with his character. And we know his character, that he is slow to anger, that he abounds in loving kindness and compassion towards his children, that he is eager to come to the aid of his people, that he inclines his ear to the cries of his children, that he brings them up out of the pit of destruction and out of the miry clay, and he sets them upon a rock, making their footsteps And He is the God who puts a new song in the mouths of His children. A song of praise to Him. So when I talk about God's sovereignty, I'm talking about His whole character. His power and character married together so that His power is always guided by, shaped by, wielded by, directed by who He is. And so it's a lovely thing. And when we trust in God's sovereign design, as verse 13 and 14 call us to consider, we are freed up now to concentrate on a much more urgent set of questions. How can I best honor him in this adversity? See, that trust him. That question begins in a position of trust. What does the Lord want me to see about him in this trial? And what is the Lord showing me about myself in this trial? That's the other part of what gets revealed in adversity. The other thing that we see, the work of God is about God. And it is also about our own hearts and what we see about ourselves. I was reminded of this this week uh, as I was reading Mark. And if you'll turn with me to Mark 4, chapter 4, the end of Mark 4. And uh, Emmanuel, folks, if you're sitting next to somebody and they don't have a Bible, uh, will you uh, be a gracious host and pull out one of the pew Bibles or share your own Bible with them and get them to Mark 4, uh, verses 35 and through 41? As you know this story, and it's the story of Jesus uh, getting in the boat with his disciples and they're going to go across the sea. And... Uh, Apparently, uh, at some point in the journey, uh, our Lord uh, begins to uh, fall asleep in the stern, I believe it is, of the boat. And uh, a storm arises and it uh, is threatening everyone and Jesus remains asleep. And uh, the waves were, verse 37 says, there arose a fierce gale of wind. This is no ordinary uh, gust of wind. It's a gale of wind. And the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. This is a very... Tough situation. And he himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Now, they awake in Jesus. They were willing to get in the boat with him, right? They knew the sea. They, I mean, they're, these, most of these guys are fishermen, right? They understand how storms work. They can read the clouds. They're willing to get in the boat with him to go across the sea. They're following Jesus. They're a very rare group of people. I mean, he's just, he's just told them uh, 
what the meaning of the parable of the sower is. You know, there's only one category of seed out of the four categories of seed of the parable of the sower that actually returns fruit. And Jesus has explained this parable to them. And so they are this select group of people. The crowds have left Jesus behind and, and, and Jesus has entrusted these, you know, this true meaning of his ministry to them and they appear to understand it, right? Because they get in the boat with him and they go across the sea. As soon as the storm threatens them, they wake him up with a question. Teacher, verse 38, do you not care that we are perishing? Oh, isn't that interesting? They were willing to get in the boat and go across the lake with him. They're willing to trust him that far. But as soon as things become difficult and they are at a point of fear, do you notice how everything is now in play? Both halves of that question are wrong. That question is wrong in both halves. First, Do you not care? Does it not matter to you? That assumption is wrong in the question. And the second assumption, that we are perishing, that's also wrong. Do you see how quickly their hearts, the true condition of their hearts are revealed in the midst of the storm? There are things that the disciples have to be in the midst of a storm things about themselves and their own heart that they have to be in the midst of a storm in order to see. That don't become visible until the storm pushes them to the limit and they see the weakness of their own hearts. But the disciples not only see themselves more clearly in that storm and in that adversity, they also see Jesus more accurately. There are things about him, his power and his commitment to them that he could only teach them in the heart of a storm. Right? Until they were in the midst of a sea Uh, under the threat of a gale and the boat swamping and them drowning. Until then, discussion of Jesus' power was more theoretical and less actual. And now in the heart of the storm, Jesus has carried them into the heart of the storm. Why? So he can just expose the weakness of their faith? Well, that's part of it. But why does he do that? So he can show them ultimately that he is the Lord of the storm. This storm is about him. And he says, hush, be still. Friends, the promise of Jesus' presence in our adversity is no less than it is for the disciples here. And his agenda is no different. Adversity brings things to the surface that we would not ordinarily see or be willing to accept about us. But at the same time, adversity, just like the storm in the midst of the sea, is an opportunity for God to show us who He is. Do you have that kind of desire to see those things? To see those truths? Oh yeah. You know, if you'd ask the disciples while they were on the shore, 
Do you want to see that Jesus is the Lord of the storm? That the wind and the sea obey Him? Would you want to see that? Well, well I think 100% of the disciples would have said, absolutely, I want to know that. But if you'd ask them ahead of, the t- ahead of time, now are you willing to be in a boat and to be at the point of fearing that you're going to die, be right on that edge in order to see it? Are you willing to go to that end in order to see that? Well, do you think the same percentage would say, yes, I, I don't know. I have my doubts. Because the disciples are just like me and I know what a coward I am. But you see how Jesus is working here? I see a very similar spirit between the lesson that Jesus teaches the disciples in Mark 4 and the point of Ecclesiastes 7. What's our main work in adversity? It is to trust God, to honor Him, to love Him, to, to, to honor Him with faith, that trusts Him, that even though there are limits to what I can know, and what he's going to tell me that I know that he's still trustworthy. You see that verse 14 makes it very clear that we should not expect. One of the, one of the reasons that, that spending time on the why question is a waste is because God has already told us that there are two categories of knowledge in the universe. There are secret things. This is from Deuteronomy 29. 29. There are secret things that belong to the Lord. And then the second category, and only the Lord knows them. And the second category is the things revealed, the revealed things. And those are the things that belong to us and to our sons forever. And there are things that God has already told us he's not going to tell us. And so we're left in this place. Do we have enough information from God, enough promises, enough track record to honor him with faith? and with confidence, and with perseverance, and yes, with joy in adversity, even though we may not know why a particular adversity is in our life. I ask you, do you have enough information about God's character, His track record, and His steadfastness to His promises? Do you have enough information about His heart for people? Do you have enough information about His commitment to His children and their welfare eternally? Do you have enough information Oh, we do. We're just not willing to be satisfied. Samuel Rutherford, who was a Puritan, I've given you three quotes from him in the reflection quotes uh, on the front page of the bulletin. And I've just been very helped by the last one in particular. The last phrase, duties are ours, events are the Lord's. What a very helpful handle I find that to be. That we, the flow of events and the order of events is under the sovereign disposition of our wise and good Heavenly Father. His character is without blemish. And so in, in events that bring adversity into our lives, there are limits on what our sphere of responsibility is. We don't control the events. There are duties that God has revealed to us that we're supposed to respond with. And I'm going to talk about those now with you. Um, But events are the Lord's. Duties are ours. Now, we've spent time thinking about what the wrong question to ask, which is why. 
And there are three questions that are the right question to ask, which I want to uh, the right questions to ask in adversity. And they are these three. And I want to I want to encourage you to ask them first has to do with humility. Am I increasingly humble under the mighty hand of God? First, Peter five, six in this adversity. Or am I seeing evidence of pride and resistance in my heart? See, these are the questions I think we need to focus on. Not why, but we need to ask, am I increasingly becoming humble under the mighty hand of God in this adversity? Or am I seeing evidence of pride and resistance in my heart? Is this adversity exposing pride that was latent? Uh, am I second-guessing God's wisdom? Does He know best or not? Do I, am I battling with a sense of entitlement or deserving? Do I have this, despite what I say on the surface, under the hood, is there this view of the universe in my heart that I was counting on it to be like a vending machine? And then I have a sense of entitlement that I put good stuff in. Or am I humble? Trusting God. Humility is neither passivity nor fatalistic resignation. I want to make sure that you don't misunderstand me. Humility in the face of God's sovereignty is not passivity. It doesn't require faith to be passive. Faith is required to submit. Faith is required to say, this hurts. I'm in pain. I trust you. Right? That's Gethsemane. Jesus is not passive as he goes to the cross. He's submissive. Passivity gives up. Passivity dishonors God. Passivity says God's promises don't matter. I'm just a robot. I don't matter. I'm just a doormat. That's not humility. That's not humility that honors God. Submission says, Father, I don't have any other guide, any other reference point in this situation except your promise and your track record. And that's enough for me. I yield. Second question has to do with hope. Am I abounding in hope? Romans fifteen thirteen, during this adversity. Or am I seeing evidence of fear and even despair in my heart? Has the sovereign Lord sent this adversity into my life, into your life, in order to reveal to us, to bring to the surface that... Though we believe the gospel, our lives are not characterized by hope. Now, let me distinguish here, just as I distinguished under humility, passivity from humility. Let me, let me make sure, because of the misuse of the word hope in our language, so different from the way the Bible uses that word, that we understand what I'm talking about. I'm talking about biblical hope. Biblical hope is not optimism. Here's what optimism... Well, optimism... You know I love optimism, right? Optimism, here's a thesis. You can put this on your refrigerator and blame me. Optimism is just as much a sin as pessimism. You see, all optimism does is trust in an outcome, in a result. Biblical hope trusts in a person. 
Biblical hope looks to a person, the Lord, who has made promises, who has done wondrous deeds and wondrous works. Biblical hope trusts the track record, trusts the consistency of God, honors Him with rejoicing and expecting like the watchman in Psalm 130 that He is going to come more certainly than the morning comes. Optimism just says it's going to work out. Now that sounds hopeful. That's not hopeful. That doesn't honor God at all. That's just a gambler's roll of the dice. Come on, seven. That doesn't honor God. That's not faith. Biblical hope is full of God. It stuffs the soul's mattress with God's promises and says, these are mine because I'm a child of God and He is not going to deviate from these. That's what hope is. The ultimate confidence is a person. And you see, Rutherford just nails this. On the front page, hope means God's got a plan. Life looks so chaotic. Look at the middle quote. I love this. This is so it's just so helpful. Even amongst men. See, he's he's got an image. Rutherford is 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 counseling people who are wrestling with present adversity. And so he comes up with this example. He, He essentially is saying, hey, you ever been to a construction site when a house is being built? It looks like a total mess. You ever seen a garden being created for the first time? It looks like a total mess. That's the Mike Francis 21st century version. Now listen to the 17th century. Even amongst men, we see hewn stones, timber, and a hundred scattered parcels and pieces of a house. All under tools, hammers, and axes and saws. It's a mess, right? Yet the house... The beauty and ease of so many lodgings and ease rooms we neither see nor understand for the present. These are but in the mind and head of the builder as yet. The builder is God. right? We see red earth, unbroken clods, furrows, and stones, but we see not summer lilies, roses, and the beauty of the garden. See, God has a plan. Biblical hope says God has a plan. God has a plan. He is building this glorious temple of His church. He is conforming His children to the image of His Son. He is wielding everything in the entire universe to sanctify the Bride of Christ and to bring us to that place of consummation. And right now, in the adversity, which is just one of His tools, it looks chaotic. But we are to trust that the house is in the mind of the builder, right? The reason you don't flip out when you go to a construction site is because you know the builder has the plan, has the end in view. Why would you trust a builder and not trust God? That's what Rutherford is saying to us. And that's a challenge. And the final question has to do with joy. So humility, hope, and joy. Am I rejoicing in the Lord? Philippians 4.4 and exalting in my tribulations, Romans 5.3. Or is the Lord teaching me through this adversity that the joy of the Lord, Nehemiah 8.10, is not my strength? Is that what God is showing you? That's what God has been showing me. The joy of the Lord is not my strength. I'm a man who believes the gospel. I'm a child of the living God. 
And yet if you audited my life, you would find a shameful shortage of joy in the Lord. That's a status quo that is displeasing to the Lord and is unacceptable to me. If that status quo is present in your life, it should be displeasing to you also. You see, it's not enough not to complain. We're not supposed to complain, right? There's, there are commands. We're supposed to do everything without grumbling and murmuring, right? But that's not where the commands end. Because it's not enough to simply safeguard the absence of complaining. Because Scripture enjoins us and commands us to rejoice in the Lord and to ensure the presence of praise and delight in God. And when God brings an adversity into your life or a chain of adversities, and there is, contrary to the plain teaching of Scripture everywhere, the the disciples were joyful that they were considered worthy to suffer for the sake of the name in the book of Acts. When there, when there isn't joy evident in our lives, you know, what, you know what Jesus is mercifully showing us? He's bringing us into the heart of the storm and he's saying, the gospel needs to go deeper in your life, beloved. You need to see the value of my promises and my work more clearly. There is yet progress to make. Your heart is attached in its hopes and in its longings to things that cannot satisfy you. Consider the work of God that I am causing all things to work together for your good. For those whom the Father foreknew, right? He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. That's the verse right after Romans 8.28. How do you know Romans 8.28 is true? Because of the master plan of God's salvation that He would grant us this master architecture in verse 29 and then in verse 30 and then we get to verse 31 in Romans 8 and He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? All Paul is doing is saying, consider the work of Of God in Christ. And that is the theme. That is the bridge that unites the table this morning to our text. Our text celebrates the sovereign work of God and the irreversible power of God. When God bends something, no power in the universe can undo it. Friends, that is exactly the same thing this table celebrates when God determines to redeem sinners and to call a people to Himself and to wash them in the blood of His Son and to give them an eternal inheritance and to confer adoption upon them and to, and to uh, cloak them in the righteousness of His Son. That determination can never be undone and God will not undo it. And we celebrate the stability of His goodness and His character and His work today at the table. So come with a big view of God and abide in the life-giving light this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we want to honor You. There are so many things that are hard in our lives. But You've given us Your Word and Your track record and we long to exult in You through our trials. We want to consider the work of God and to honor you for your strength and your power and your goodness. So seal your word to our hearts now. We pray in Jesus' name.
Will you now please stand and sing with us, How Sweet and Awesome is the Place. <laughs> 